Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's Word. The text this morning is from Genesis 17, uh, verses 1 to 8. I'll be reading in Hebrew, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Verse 2. Vayapol Avram al Panav. Vayaber Oto Elohim le mor. Ani hene viriti itha itach. Vayeta la av hamor goyim. Velo yikre od et shimcha Avram. Vahaya shimcha Avraham. Ki av hamon goyim. Netatiha Vahit Vahifretiotra bimeod meod Venatatiha legoim Umelachim mimcha yetseu. Verse seven Vahakimoti et viriti beni uvenecha. Uve vein zaracha achrecha, le drotom tam, le vrit olam, le hayot lecha lohim, ula zaracha achrecha, venatati lecha, ula zaracha achrecha et eretz, Migurecha et kol eretz kanaan la achuzat olam, vahaiti lehem lelohim. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church, what's being. Uh, what's going on right now is uh, kids are being dismissed for Children's Church. Reminder to parents to pick them up right before or right after you take communion. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm a, the senior pastor here at Trinity City Church. Uh, if you're visiting, it's good to see you. We are in a sermon series in the book of Genesis right now, and uh, it was nice hearing uh, the scripture reading in Hebrew. I got to study Hebrew uh, during seminary, and uh, it looks like our pastoral resident has, has kept up on it a little bit better than me, so it was great to hear uh, that reading and another way to, in our liturgy, celebrate the global nature of the Christian faith. Uh, we've been in the book of Genesis for several weeks right now, and it's, it, we're kind of right in the middle of the book, especially following the story of this man named Abram, or Abraham, as he's about to be renamed in the passage today. Um, and uh, this will take us, this sermon series will take us right up to Memorial uh, Weekend. So that's how long the series is going to take. So let's go ahead and pray and then dive into the text today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for gathering your people. We thank you for giving faith uh, for many of us. And at one point, all of us, 
we did not have faith. Our faith was dead or our faith was directed in different objects that had uh, no business being the center of our life. But because of your activity in the world, because of the power of your resurrection at work in Jesus Christ, your power raised faith in our hearts and placed that faith in an appropriate object, namely your gospel. May that faith be nourished right now by the preaching of your word, by remembering your promise, and, re and by remembering your character behind each promise that you make, that you will carry forward what you say you're going to do, even if, from our perspective, the promise seems so impossible from an earthly perspective, may we trust that you will carry it ahead if that's what you say you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I read about a story a couple weeks ago about a pizza hut in Canada that printed a sign uh, that ended up receiving media attention and getting the, the national news. And what happened to set up uh, the sign before I show it to you is that there's some un unplanned event that happened at this particular pizza hut in Canada that caused them to close their restaurant, re restaurant one evening. Uh, so, like many of us, um, that if we're in a situation like that, you have to let the guests know that something's going on. You know, last week we didn't meet here, so we printed off signs and put them on the door to let people know that we were meeting at uh, a retreat uh, that we're having service up north rather than here in St. Paul. So you print off a sign and let people know. So somebody was in charge of that, and here's the sign that they hung on the door. Let me go ahead and read that to you out loud. It says, due to unforeseen circumcisions, the dining room will be closed this evening. Sorry for the inconvenience. Open for takeout and delivery only. So, unforeseen circumcisions would probably indeed uh, <laughs> shut down a pizza hut. Well, I think it's not enough. You can still do takeout. You just can't dine in. Uh, whatever happened to the employees there, right? Now, if you're wondering what happened, uh, if, and you think about it, you probably can figure out what exactly happened here. This was a typo. This was a spelling error, uh, because whoever was in charge of writing this uh, meant to say, due to unforeseen circumstances, not circumcisions. But it was an honest mistake, uh, and now this person is receiving their 15 minutes of fame, uh, and even, even to the degree that church people are talking about it. Uh, now, it's interesting, as I was thinking about the text, like the text will go on in Genesis to talk about circumcision. Uh, circumcision is one of those things that you might not confuse it with uh, circumstances, uh, that you understand the difference between those two words. Uh, but if you've spent any time in Scripture and you know that this is uh, an, an image, a sign of the covenant that uh, comes up quite a bit in Scripture, and it might be a confusing thing to you. Maybe you've always wondered, like, what is the deal with this uh, sign in the Scriptures? What is the point of it? Why is it this sign? And even the, the New Testament will talk about sometimes the church's struggle with understanding what the purpose of it is. Well, this is a passage where in the story of Abraham, the, um, the kind of the origin story of where this covenant sign came from uh, is, is told. And so if this has been a confusing thing to you, uh, maybe you're a little uh, more theologically confused than you were, grammatically confused like the Pizza Hut people, this will be a sermon that will hopefully unpack that 
that and really how the fulfillment of this sign in Christ occurs and all the things that, that uh, go with that for people of faith. So let's go back to the context and let me set up uh, chapter 17 of Genesis for you. As you know, if you've been following the book of Genesis, there has been this promise to Abram and Sarai. This couple that have struggled to conceive children, and now they have grown old, well beyond their their, uh, childbearing years, but yet there's this promise that they're given uh, that they will have children. And this promise has been told to this couple and told again and reaffirmed uh, time and time again. And the last time we heard God show up to tell this promise to this couple uh, was back in chapter 16. And from that time that God talked to, him, talked to the couple to what's happening now in chapter 17, 13 years have passed. That's the time lapse between God saying, you're going to have this child. And 13 years has passed now with that not happening. So God shows up again to uh, father, the father, Abram, and in chapter 17, he continues to reaffirm his promises to Abraham uh, and Sarah. And uh, the, most of the things that God is saying in chapter 17 are the things that we know, that many nations will come from uh, this couple, uh, that, that through the, the nation that will come through Abraham and Sarah, uh, other, other people will be blessed, uh, people all over the, the world will be blessed by knowing them and their God, that they'll also inherit a place for this nation to exist in a land, and that this commitment that God is making to his people is an everlasting one. It's one that he is going to always be committed to. Then we have a couple new things in this chapter that we get to uh, understand that really increases our understanding of this covenant, these promises that God is making. One we see in chapter 17, verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram, Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Uh, Throughout the the sermon series, I've always oscillated between calling him Abram and Abraham, and this is why, because I know eventually his name is going to be Abraham, and that name means that he is the father of many nations. Also, his wife is uh, renamed as well. Uh, later in verse 15, God will say that Sarai's name will be changed to Sarah. And the, na- the meaning of the name is actually the same. It's just a different way to pronounce and spell the name. Some of, I have two spellings of my name, Brian with an I, Brian with a Y. Uh, so similar to Sarai and Sarah, it's the same name. And both uh, names means princess. So you have the father of many nations, that's what the name means, and Sarah, the princess of many nations and kings, because that's what the promise is all about. Another new emphasis talks, uh, pops up here too, and this is the sign of the covenant. This is the, the, the thing that I opened with that we're going to get deeper into our understanding. And a covenant, again, is just another word for promise. God is making these promises to his people, and a sign of a covenant is similar to a modern-day sign like a ring. Uh, a ring is a sign of a, the covenant of marriage, and just like that is a sign of a covenant, so too God is going to have a different covenantal 
visible sign associated with these promises that he's making to Abraham, Sarah, and the people that will come from them. Uh, There's been another covenant sign in the book of Genesis, back with the story of Noah. We have the covenant sign of a rainbow that signifies that God will never flood the earth again. And so a sign always points beyond itself to something more significant. So let's check out this covenant sign uh, that God is promising. Look at verses 9 through 14 with me. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your, fl- is in, my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. Now, what is circumcision? Well, we're in a church service. I can only go so deep into this. Uh, If you're unaware, if you're a kid here, maybe even if you're an adult, it's a good conversation to have with your uh, parents to go deeper into this, to define it just for the purpose of what I'm going to set up later. It's It's the removal of flesh from a male body part that's used in the reproductive process. If you need more details, talk to some other people, all right? And what I'm going to talk about from now, I mean, there's so many things that you, uh, like I know our culture talks about related to circumcision. I'm not going to highlight anything that has to do with like the medical perspective on this. Uh, if that's something that you're curious about, I'll, I'll connect you with a good urologist. You can chat with that person, okay? This is really going to talk about the, the, the religious and the theological significance of this being a covenant sign. That's what we're going to lean into today. So considering verses 9 through 14 that we just read, this is the summary of that. The sign of circumcision is for every male who's part of the covenant community. It doesn't matter if they're born into the community or come into these households later. They, every male is to be circumcised as a sign of this covenant. And those who do not practice this covenant sign at this point from here on out are cut off from the covenant community, the text says. So this is a big deal in the covenant community. And you might, and the question to ask is, why is this a sign of the covenant? Like, what's the significance? If a sign points beyond itself to something more significant, what is it pointing to? Why this sign? Well, there's a couple things that we see in the text. One, it says that this is a marker of an everlasting covenant. So there's a sense that since this covenant sign of circumcision is a permanent uh, practice, that it points to the eternal nature of the promises of God. In addition, later in Scripture, circumcision is connected with the new calling on God's people to remove their old ways and to practice new ways of loving God and neighbor that there are the ways of uh, God. Uh, that's why other verses in the Old Testament talk about those who have, may have been circumcised uh, in their body, but their hearts are not circumcised, meaning that they don't live lives that are changed, that they haven't turned from old ways and are now on everlasting ways. Paul, Apostle Paul in the New Testament, picks up on this imagery in Romans 2.25 when he writes, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, 
you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So his point there is what really matters, what this is pointing to is a change of life, is removing the old fleshy ways and now practicing the new ways of, of life that are loving God and loving neighbor as you love yourself. But this still doesn't answer the question, if you've ever wondered this, why this body part? Like, why, why couldn't it be something else? Like, if the symbolism is removing something, uh, right, removing old ways, and that's the point of the, the imagery, why not cut your hair, right? Why not? Why has it got to be something that's a little bit more intimate, right? A, a, a little bit more uh, uh, below the belt, if you will. Why is it that uh, the sign of the covenant? Well, you have to remember the story again. Remember the context. What is this promise connected to in the story of Abraham and Sarah? What has been the thing we're still anticipating to happen because the promise has been given and reiterated and reaffirmed, but they still don't have what? The promised son still has not come into their family. It's because the covenant is connected to God fulfilling his promise to bring this promised son. That's why it's this body part, because it's this intimate body part that's connected to the promise. And so it points beyond itself to the God's promises being fulfilled as a way for him to raise a people up for himself against impossible odds. But still he's going to raise people up for himself to bless the world. That's why this is the covenant sign. Uh, Let's look at now that Abraham is hearing these promises again, how he is going to respond. While God is saying these things to Abraham, he is lay, laying down with his face in the dirt, which is a posture of humility and reverence. And Abraham has been listening to God, and he's probably continuing to think about these promises, especially the promised son that has not come yet. Uh, and and, and he's, him and Sarah have tried to invent other ways of trying to like go outside of God's boundaries to maybe see this promise fulfilled. But God is persistent that when he, what he says is going to happen. Verses 15 through 16 says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, but her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. It's by her you will have the son. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. So God is making it clear once again, this promise is going to be fulfilled by, with a son through you and Sarah. It will not be through other means. It will not be through other relationships. And this is how Abraham responds in verse 17. Abraham fell face down again. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. What's going on here? So Abraham is face down before the Lord. And while he's face down and he hears these promises again about, about Sarah specifically, it's him and Sarah that the son will come from, he starts to laugh. The nature of his laughter is revealed in the questions that he's asking. He, it's highlighting how old they are, a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, emphasizing that they are well beyond their childbearing years. And this laugh is likely a mixture of different human emotions that he's experiencing uh, in this moment. It's probably a laugh that's mixed with faith and also questions and also astonishment that God would give this promise and that it's probably, and it's going to happen. 
then God's commitment to carry out his promises through his son and Abraham, uh, through a son through Abraham and Sarah, triggers this statement from Abraham. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And that's Abraham's way of saying that since you're going to give me this promised son through Sarah, may I also be doubly blessed that Ishmael would also receive your favor as well. That's what he's requesting there. God responds in verse 19. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. So Ishmael will be blessed by the Lord to the tune of 12 rulers or nations that will come from him. But this child of promise through Abraham and Sarah will come. And his name is Isaac, which means he laughs, which was the response of Abraham to God's promises again. This is the child of the everlasting covenant that will give rise to a people that will bless the world. And the last verses of this chapter, chapter 17, end with Isaac and every single male uh, in Isaac's household in this growing uh, nation, uh, not Isaac's, Abraham's household and this growing nation that belongs to Abraham, all of them get circumcised. Not only those that are eight days old, but all the way up to, Abraham's case, a hundred-year-old getting circumcised. So it was probably a rough couple days. It doesn't give that detail in the text, but I think you can assume it was a rough couple days after that. So everybody takes on that sign of circumcision, every male in uh, that household. But let's check now with how Sarah is going to respond to these promises, because that's where chapter 18 goes. Chapter 18 opens with Abraham noticing three men uh, nearby his tent, and he rushes out uh, to meet them and invites them in to rest and to eat. Uh, We get this note from verse 1 that it's the Lord that's appearing to Abraham through these three people. So we get to know, Abraham doesn't know, but we get to know by reading the story that these three people are not just ordinary men. These are angelic beings going there to give a message from God to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham likely doesn't know that yet. He's so excited to see these folks that he runs out of his tent and invites them into his house, his tent, because he wants to extend hospitality to them. And that might seem radical to us, especially if you grew up in Minnesota. If, if, I know a lot of people are not from Minnesota, but the reputation for folks up in north here is that we'll give you directions to anywhere but our house. Uh, this is a, a little bit of the opposite culture that Abraham is a part of, where hospitality is a very big deal. And if it even seems still odd that even if you're into hospitality, you're like, well, I love to host people, but not strangers, you have to remember Abraham's story. He was a migrant uh, that was roaming around that didn't have the power influence that he's growing into right now, so he's probably had to depend so much on the hospitality of others up until this point. So this is just part of who he is and the experience that he has received as well. And also, hospitality in the scriptures is a, is a sign that your heart is circumcised. It's a, it's a sign that you understand the hospitality of God in your life. Going back to the story, he convinces these three men to stay. He runs back to the tent so that Sarah and the rest of his household can help host these three people. They prepare uh, uh, bread and curds and milk, and they even kill a tender calf to provide some meat, which is like top-shelf, manny steakhouse type of meat that they're going to provide for these three guests. 
Abraham brings all these things out of the tent to the three men. They sit under a tree, and they strike up a conversation. And this is what they talk about, verses 9 through 12. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, Am I wore out? After I am wore out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So it's likely at this point that Abraham and Sarah are both realizing that these are just not three ordinary men, but this is the Lord visiting them through these angelic messengers. And they're asking these very personal questions about their life and making promises that they've heard from the Lord. And Sarah is not out there under the tree having this picnic with them, but she's right by the tent, the entrance in the tent, and she's listening to the conversation. And she hears the promise that she and Abraham will bear this child. This child, Isaac, is going to come from them. And she responds, as the text says, by laughter. That she's laughing. And I think part of the thing that's happening here is God wants to have Sarah hear this promise directly from him. Sarah, you are going to bear this son that's going to give rise to a nation that will bless the world. And she responds with laughter and, and with this question, because Sarah is well aware of the emphasis of the text so far, that she is old, well past childbearing years, and so is he. He's well past childbearing years. And her question is essentially saying, we are far too old uh, for both sex and childbearing. We're way too old for these activities, and now you're promising that I get to have the pleasure of being a mother? That's essentially how she is asking the question. And what's behind this laughter? I think it's similar to Abraham. The laughter is likely a mixture of many different things. It's a mixture of faith, uh, mixed with questions, mixed with doubt, mixed with probably pain for never being able to bear a child, and then hearing over and over again, after years and years and years, you're going to have a child, you're going to have a child, and the child still doesn't come. The child still doesn't come. So she laughs, and it's probably a mixture of all these different types of doubts and pain and faith and anticipation that is behind that laughter. And this is how the Lord responds, verses uh, 13 through 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at an appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, Yes, you did laugh. This promise is going to happen over the next year, and God wants Sarah to hear that promise and even hear the timeline of that promise. And she laughs with all those different emotions, and she's confronted about that laugh, but she lies about it because it's out of fear that she lies about laughing. 
And I thought a lot this week about the laughter of both Abraham and Sarah in light of this promise to bear a son, especially now that it's getting so specific. It's in a year, and they're so old, but this promised son is going to happen within the next year. Because remember the story. We were first introduced to Abraham and Sarah and their situation all the way back in Genesis 11. And there we get the detail that they have been trying uh, in their younger decades to have children, but they were unable to conceive a child even during those years. This struggle continued until they grew in age, and as Sarah describes, that she is now wore out and her husband's old. But now this promise is going to happen, it seems, and it is from an earthly perspective, absolutely impossible for a child to come into this situation. And you, again, just enter into the pain of what Abraham and Sarah have been going through, right? There, along the way of this journey, there has likely been so much weeping that they've had. Even before the promises of God came about this promised son that was going to come into their family, and especially after, that's years and years and years and decades of hearing the promises from God, but nothing is happening, this promised son isn't happening. And of course, they're going to respond when they hear, within a year, this child's going to come, that they erupt in laughter, which is kind of like if you've ever had that situation where you've had so much human emotion and experience pent up in your soul that sometimes that's how it comes out. And it's just a, such a mix of very different things. A laughter that is sometimes full of anticipation and doubts and heartache and wonder. As one church father wrote about this situation related to Isaac's name being laughter, uh, God gave the name Isaac uh, to this son because, quote, blessed laughter is what follows upon the weeping. They have been weeping and in such a painful experience so long, and they erupt in laughter, a mix of human emotions at the thought of this promise happening. And for this moment, Sarah went from being empty with sorrow to being filled with laughter. In her book about Advent, author Tish Harrison Warren writes about the theology of emptiness and filling that might be behind some of these themes here. She writes, quote, In the creation story, God fills what is empty. He fills the empty land with trees and plants. He fills the empty sky with the sun and the moon. He fills the empty sea with swimming things. He fills the earth with life. She goes on to connect this imagery in creation with Genesis 1.28, which is God's mandate to creation to be fruitful and to multiply. It's a command that's repeated throughout Genesis, and it's a command not just about procreation, but it's also about being filled and fruitful with the things of God, with his life and his love. Warren uh, goes on to write about the, this metaphorical understanding of not only uh, uh, filling what is empty, but also barrenness. She writes, quote, Barrenness, by contrast, is understood in the Bible as part of the curse that is on humanity after the fall, part of the affliction of living in a world marked by disappointment and futility. The sorrow of humanity, frustrated by sin, is like a woman longing for children, but unable to bear them. This author, Tish Harrison Warren, doesn't make this point and make this metaphor as a person that's detached from the pain of infertility. Uh, the Women's Book Club here at Trinity is going to uh, discuss another book by this author titled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. 
And uh, Tish Harrison Warren uh, wrote this book as a longer uh, reflection on the power of prayer during suffering. And the particular occasion of her suffering that gave rise to this book was her own struggles with infertility and a miscarriage. Uh, it's, it's one of those books that I think even in the context of our church, that's a needed book. It's a needed conversation considering the stage of life that many of our families are in and a very common experience that's here, that's here at Trinity. Many of you have dealt with the pain of miscarriage and infertility and all that Tish is, is writing about with this imagery of, of barrenness is something that you have felt deeply and maybe as I have been going through these stories about Abraham and Sarah, you have been feeling that pain that they have felt deeply along with them because of that experience in your life. It's an experience that uh, a church community ought to talk about, to lean into things like uh, discussions like books like this and that, that experience that many uh, women here at Trinity have to lean into that pain and to lean into that imagery because it is something that is a common experience of the people of God and, and, um, and just human beings in general. And that's why I wanted to pause a little bit here, because as I was, I was preaching through this, the story of Genesis, I, I think it was just worth in a sermon just lingering on that a little bit and lingering on that emotion that was, is also a big part of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, many would likely relate to that story and relate to the laughter that erupted with that promise being given again. Uh, because, because it's a, an experience when you go through it that it's a hurt, that experience of barrenness uh, is a hurt because it's a feeling that this is not the way it ought to be. And that's why it hurts so much. And, and, and you've got to go back to what Abraham and Sarah are experiencing and hearing this promise, not only because of their struggle, with infertility of their whole life, but now that they're old, and it's just, it's just humanly and biologically impossible now for them to have a child. But yet God comes and says, in a year, this promised child is going to come. From their perspective and from our perspective, that is impossible. How can God's word be fulfilled in such an impossible situation? That's what's behind that question that God asked in his response to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's really the heart of this text, I see, is the answer to that question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I, I mentioned, uh, I believe it was the last time I preached, that there's this book that a group of us guys are reading called 12 Things That God Can't Do. And it's, it's one of those things that some people get really snarky behind a question like this. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And some people were like, well, yes, there is. Uh, as one person commented in our book club, uh, it's like asking this question, can God heat up a burrito that's too hot for him to eat? Uh, that's how one philosopher in our book club put it. Uh, it you know, and if he can, does that mean like, you know, the heat of the burrito is, is uh, more powerful than God? That's kind of what the question is getting at. But as the the point of the book makes is this, that God's inability to do something often shows his greatness. So yeah, the answer, answer that question, that deep philosophical question, yeah, God cannot heat up a burrito too hot for him to eat. It's impossible for him to do that, but it's impossible for him to do that precisely because he is God and nothing is too great for him and his power. And there's nothing more powerful than God. That's why he can't do that and that's good news. So back to this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can the Lord bring a child to bear in this situation? 
And, and the question is also not only getting at maybe the negative way to answer that question or ask that question, but also the positive. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord is another way to translate that word. Things can often be also so difficult to think that God can do it, but also maybe too wonderful. That's the other perspective that Abraham and Sarah likely have. Like, man, if this, if this was to happen, this would be so wonderful. Maybe just too wonderful for it to actually happen. And that's the experience that they have. Now, here, God is not making a general commitment to every couple who shares this situation, but rather a specific promise to this couple because it's through them all peoples will be blessed and that a promised son will come. We'll talk about Isaac throughout the book of Genesis, but Isaac also pointed beyond himself to the deeper fulfillment of this happening in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 134, this is what happens when the birth of Jesus is announced. And this is another young woman who's a virgin that's given this promise that she too will bear an impossible pregnancy. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be, uh, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. That phrase, no word from God will ever fail, is the point behind the question, is anything too hard or wonderful for the Lord? If God had promised an old and barren uh, woman, Sarah, to have a son, is that promise too hard for him to keep? If God said to the Virgin Mary that she will give birth, will that promise, if God made it, ever fail? Of course, the answer is no, it would never fail. God's covenant is, 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 is secure, and his promise to fill and bring new life will happen. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus the Messiah is born. To go back to uh, author Tish Harrison Warren, she says about Jesus' birth, quote, In the story of Jesus' birth, the dawn of a new creation, God fills empty places again. In her magnificent, Mary sings that God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. In the Christmas story, empty wombs are filled. Empty skies are suddenly filled with angels. Empty mangers are filled with the light of the world, end quote. And what happens here is that Jesus the Christ is the true and better promised son from Abraham and Sarah's family tree that has come into the world. Jesus is the one who redeems God's people, and from them they will be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. It is through Jesus that all people, Jew or Gentile, are filled with the light of the glory of God. And this is one of the reasons that circumcision is no longer required for the church. It's because Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant sign. And what matters for the Christian faith is not circumcision of the body, but one of the heart. For the church, whether or not one is circumcised is an area of liberty and freedom. But the removal of our flesh, that is the power of sin in our hearts, is an essential sign that the promises of God in Christ is at work in our life. Uh, Paul really wants to lean into this because he was dealing with a situation where people were making too big, of a, big a deal about the sign and that you have to do all these things for God to be pleased with you. And then he writes in Galatians 5 too, Mark my words, I, Paul, 
tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He doesn't take issue with the practice of circumcision in general, but the issue he takes is the requirement of it and the emphasis that you do religious activity, then that is what gives you grounds to be justified before God, that that's what the heart of the Christian faith is. He pushes back on that, 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 that if the heart of your religion, Paul is essentially saying, is obedience to God is what gets you accepted by God, you're missing the point. In Christ, outside religious signs like circumcision aren't what matters nor is keeping a bunch of religious rules. It's not the grounds of our standing before God. What matters, he says, is faith in Christ expressing itself through love. And like Paul often gets in his letters, he gets a little edgy about those that are telling uh, God's people other things to put your object of faith in. He says, stop putting your object in faith in this religious custom. And he says, if removing your flesh in this way and doing all these other religious works is what matters, then he goes and says, go all the way. Galatians 5.12, as for those agitators, that is the people that are saying this, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves if removing flesh in that matter is what counts as righteousness before God. Paul is serious. He wants us to have our faith in the promises of God as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and what all these signs are pointing to. I think it's easy for us to see how God bringing the promised son Isaac to Abraham and Sarah is such a miracle. I also think uh, looking at the story of the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus Christ who dies for our sins and raises from the dead, that, yeah, that's a miracle. That is God doing impossible things. But do you know what else is impossible? Raising dead faith to life. Redirecting our object of faith from the things that we do into the things that Christ has done. Let me close with this story. In the Gospel of Matthew, a rich young man approaches Jesus about what he needs to do to be saved, to be counted among God's people. Jesus responds, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler asks, well, which ones? Jesus gives examples from the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your parents, and some love your neighbors as yourself, and, and that's what you should do. Then the rich young ruler responds in verse 20, All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Turning one's faith from earthly objects to the wealth of God's rich grace is an impossible task. But not for God. 
In Christ, through the Spirit, God does what is humanly impossible. He fills what is empty. He brings life to what is barren. And he gives faith in a, in, in a heart where there is none. Because that's what God does in the gospel.